Is this on? Yes, great. Thank you, Andy. It's great to be back. I mean, to be here twice in consecutive weeks is a treat. <laughs> it doesn't usually happen very much, but thank you for the opportunity. I'm really glad to be able to step in and help you this week. And it's so good to hear the news and looking forward to seeing Nigel when he's back in the saddle um, in quite a few weeks' time, not next week. Yeah, there was a theme developing in some of the things this morning that were said about just taking time that we need, so that, that's very important. Um, Linda and I are part of uh, a ministry that works, as has been said, all over the world. We, we really work with churches and different places to bring a real understanding of God as a father to people. Many of us have a real struggle with the idea of God being a father. We love Jesus, we love the Holy Spirit, but God the Father's a bit out there somewhere. And we're discovering that increasingly he is a father who is right here, at the very closest as our own breath, as we sang in that song, your breath in our lungs. When God created the first man, he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And I've often thought of that picture that we see in Genesis of God breathing into Adam, a man who at that point was a mud man. He was not made of anything other than mud. But it was as God breathed life into him that everything changed in that first human being. I can imagine it would have been quite a sight. I guess the angels might have been watching because they were around there for the creation. But to actually see the breath of God fill that muddy shape that was the first man as maybe the breath began to fill the lungs and the heart began to beat and the blood began to flow around the body and maybe a little finger began to twitch or an eyelid because Adam at that point had had no memories because nothing had ever happened to him he had no concept of anything and then the moment came when he would have opened his eyes and the very first thing he would have seen would have been the eyes of his father breathing life into him. And uh, that's what we're made for. That's how we are created. And we know, that looking at the scriptures, that so much of that was lost in the fall. But God has never given up on us. As far as God's concerned, we're still plan A. We're not plan C, X, or whatever. We're still on track to be his beloved sons and daughters. And so to have the privilege of talking about these things around the world is wonderful. And one of the things we talked about last week was to say that one of the ways we receive this sense of being sons and daughters to God as our Father is by allowing him to comfort us. We looked at what love looked like, and Paul, when he wrote his letter to, second letter to the Corinthians, was talking specifically about his experience of being loved by God. And Paul was in the middle of huge troubles and difficulties. We looked at some of those last week. He, he'd been through an incredibly difficult time, and he was struggling to make sense of how you live as a Christian when everything seems to be going contrary to what you want it to do, where difficulties are, are on every turn. You know, he says at the beginning of 2 Corinthians, I, I don't want you to be uninformed about the struggles we experienced in the province of Asia, that's Ephesus. He said, we, we were hard-pressed on every side. We were beyond our ability to endure. 
It's like Paul was saying, I can't cope with anything else. And I find that tremendously encouraging that he wrote about it. Because we can have this idea that, you know, the great apostle Paul who planted churches and wrote half the New Testament didn't go through stuff like we do. But the truth is he struggled just as much as we do in all sorts of circumstances. He's a real person. He has relationship struggles. And when he writes to Corinthians, he's coming from that place. You know, he didn't wait till he felt fixed. Instead, he wrote from his experience because that's all he knew. And this is my experience and I'm discovering in all of my struggles that God as a father comes to me to comfort me. He says he's the God of compassion and he says he's the father of compassion and the God of all comfort. So that was Paul's experience. And yet he still struggled. Even though he was comforted, it didn't mean that things changed in his circumstances. The issues still continued, and many of us face these sort of struggles in our Christian lives. I think it's very interesting, just watching a couple of the videos last week and this week, how um, I think, when, was it John? Was the guy who's, Jim, sorry, Jim spoke. He talked about things that have been there since his childhood and early years that still resonated and caused issues in his life. Now, Paul wasn't a lot different. And he's saying that this Christian life that we live is finding a place of rest in the midst of all of those things. So he's struggling, he's waiting to see things resolved, and in it all he says, but I'm still facing stuff. He had one particular issue, which we don't quite know what it was, that just would not go away. I don't know about you, but I can identify with that sometimes. Things that you pray about and you hope get resolved, but they don't. They just continue. And right at the end of 2 Corinthians, Paul talks about this. And he calls it his thorn in the flesh. It's a very vivid metaphor, isn't it? I mean, if you ever get a rose thorn in your thumb when you've been doing a bit of pruning and you don't get it out, it stays there. It's irritation all the time. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12 that he had an experience like that. He said it, it was a messenger of Satan. Now that makes it pretty heavy, doesn't it? It's not like just cutting, a, getting a thorn in your thumb when gardening. This was something that was clearly a satanic attack on him to try and neutralize him, to stop him from doing what God had given him to do. And he said, I was tormented by this. Again, that's very strong language. And he says this, three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. Now, I don't know about you, but or what your prayer life is like, I know what mine's like. There are times when I can get quite discouraged because I don't get the answers that I'm anticipating when I pray. You know, things that we want to happen sometimes just don't happen. Often it's because we're not really in line with what God wants. And in a sense, that's where Paul was at. He gets, he's struggling with this issue. Now, if, if you just put that into a 21st century church context, if you had someone who came to your church who says, I've got this issue in my life that's satanic in origin, and he has all the ministry under the sun, and after three really good ministry sessions, still nothing's changed, would you make him a home group leader? Or an elder of the church? or release him to do church planting. Because in a sense, that's exactly what Paul's doing. 
He's got this struggle going on, and yet it does not disqualify him at all from doing what God wants him to do. And he goes on to plant other churches and write other letters and parts of the New Testament after he's written this. This problem didn't go away as a result of prayerful, godly ministry. Now, that doesn't mean to say we don't need these times because, of course, we see the benefit of this, as we've seen in in Jim's video this morning. But in these circumstances, there's also a deeper mystery going on. If you read Narnia, it's a deeper magic is one way of looking at it. There is something going on of a deeper level when we're facing things in our Christian lives. And Paul taps into it because the answer he gets is not what he expected. He wanted God to fix it. Now, we don't know what the thorn in the flesh was for him. Now, some people have suggested it was a physical thing because there's evidence in Paul's letters that he had struggles with his eyesight, When he writes to the Philippians on one occasion, he says, you would have given me your eyes if you could have done. When he writes his letters, he has a a friend who he dictates to. So Paul doesn't physically write them himself, except in Galatians, where he says, look what large letters I use when I write in my own hand. His eyesight may have been a problem, but we don't know. There's another possibility. This could have been a person or a group of people that were his thorn in the flesh. Now that tends to land it a little closer to home for some of us, doesn't it? Because sometimes it's the people that we're involved with on a personal level that give us the biggest troubles we face and challenge us most. There were a group of believers who followed Paul around, and their background was that they had been Pharisees in Israel before they became Christians. And their Pharisaical mindset said that to be a real Christian, you have to follow all the laws of Moses, which for Gentiles was a bit of a challenge, especially for Gentile men, because it involved a minor surgical operation, which they weren't usually expecting. So these people could have been very much a thorn in the flesh to Paul because they, he'd go and plant a church and blow me, we read in Acts, a few weeks later, these guys turn up and start telling people, no, 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 that Paul's got it all wrong. To be a real believer, you have to do this, you have to do that, you have to keep the laws of Moses. In fact, Paul wrote his first letter ever, the letter to the Galatians, to deal with that issue. And he summarizes it beautifully in that letter he says to be a real believer all you have to do is recognize you're in Christ it's not about your works it's not about your activity it's not about obeying laws and rules and regulations you are in him and because you are in him and he is in you there is a completely new reality and that's what he's talking about here in this thorn of the flesh because when he prays Jesus answers him and says to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Now, we don't live in a world that thinks weakness is that good. You know, we want to have good, strong people who are dealt with all their issues and got no issues and pressing on, etc. But Paul's saying, actually, I'm still in the middle of my weakness. And I'm discovering in my weakness, my real strength comes 
from recognizing who God my Father is, the one who comforts him, the one who brings compassion. He says, real weakness is your greatest strength. It's such a contradiction in terms, isn't it? It's not the way the world thinks. It's kingdom thinking. That in our weakness, God comes to us and enables us to be the people we long to be. Paul goes one step further. He says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest on me. That's why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. I'm not there yet. Definitely not there yet. I would really like to see some of these things sorted out. But I'm learning to rest back in the arms of a father who is far stronger than I am. And in the midst of my weakness comes to me as the father of compassion, the God of all comfort he talks about. Because Paul summarizes and says, for when I am weak, then I am strong. See, this gives us permission to be weak. It gives us permission to recognize that we can't do it all on our own. And we actually need someone incredibly much more strong than us to carry us through these things. See, Paul's experience of comfort, of living amid a whole load of difficult circumstances was to rest back into God's arms as his father and let him carry him and let him be the strong one and to recognize that he couldn't do it. A little earlier in 2 Corinthians, Paul had described this in another way. This is 2 Corinthians 4. And in verse 7 he says, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. We are perplexed. We don't understand what's going on, but we're not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. I mean, the level of intensity in that statement gets stronger, doesn't it? And finally, he talks about persecution. But even in persecution, we're not abandoned because we have someone who carries us. Even to the point as if we die and are struck down, we're not destroyed. Our physical body may be, but nothing can take away what God has done for us in Christ. So Paul's thinking all through this letter was, in the midst of all these struggles, in the midst of hardship, I've got someone I can lean on. There's someone who I can go to. And it's okay to be weak and to feel I'm not doing well enough. I'm not progressing. I remember one of the things that was regularly said on my report cards when I was a little boy. It's interesting, as you get older, you remember these things more clearly. I don't know what that's about. Um, but I remember saying, if he tried harder, he could do well. You know, that's a bit of a curse when that's put on you. I don't think you're allowed to write things like that at school anymore. But we, it was put on to us that we had to try hard. We had to do a good job and maybe we would succeed. Again, it's the opposite of what the Christian life is really all about. And of course, the one we get all this from is from the one who says 
to Paul in his crying out to him, in his weakness, he says, my strength is sufficient for you. My powers may perfect in weakness. Now, when you go on your soulful walks, those of you who are going to go, that verse that was quoted this morning is exactly what Paul was talking about. Because Jesus, when he spoke in Matthew 11, looked at this whole issue of how do you live in a place of weakness? How do you live and when all the struggles are going on in the world around you? In Matthew 11, it, it describes Jesus talking to his father and praying to him. In Luke's version of this, adds a bit more detail, Luke says Jesus filled with the Holy Spirit talked to his father. The, the expression that Luke uses is quite an unusual one because it literally means Jesus jumped for joy in the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't know how you imagine Jesus to be. Um, we were chatting earlier about the chosen. That's helping us see him in a completely different way. But if you think Jesus is serious all the time, here you've got Jesus jumping for joy in the Holy Spirit and getting very excited about some good news. He says, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you've hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, this is your good pleasure. You know, it's like they're discussing a joke. The biggest joke of all is that they think it's all about being wise and learned and strong and all-powerful. And when you've studied enough, when you've gone there, you'll get it. No, he says, it's not like that. This is not revealed to the wise and the learned, but to little children. Because little children recognize they're weak. Little children know how to receive comfort. Little children know how to rest. It amazes me. You can lay them down for, within two minutes, they're gone. Mind you, as I get older, I'm discovering that's beginning to be the case. It's one of the joys of getting older, afternoon naps. Maybe it's because we're retreating into childish-heartedness. But Jesus says, to be like a little child, you just rest. You receive. And he says, Father, we're the only ones who know each other. You know me and I know you. And, I'm, and those whom you've chosen to reveal them. And I'm revealing these things to little children, people who are weak, people who are struggling, people who are not getting it all together, who haven't got their act together. You know, that's such an opposite, isn't it? Even if you do get your act together, it can still be an act. It can't be the reality. And, Paul, and Jesus is saying, now, come like little children, and what? And this is the quote we had earlier. This is the NIV. I do love the uh, version you chose to read. Was it um, the message? To live in the unforced rhythms of grace. Wonderful. It's not in the Greek, but anyway, that doesn't matter. <laughs> what it actually said is this. <clears throat> Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Jesus is saying it's okay to feel weary, weak, burdened, and struggling. Because I'm the one who really can give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Trouble is, that doesn't actually sound very restful to me. He says, take my yoke upon you. 
Learn from me. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Well, thank you, Jesus. You're the son of God. I can see how it's easy for you. But in my weakness, in my struggling, I don't find it easy to take your yoke upon me. You know, we can almost whip ourselves to say we've got to carry Jesus' yoke. But he's saying, don't be too wise and learned about this. Be like a little child. What's going on here? When I was a child, I had a book of nursery rhymes, and the last one was the song that we sometimes sing at Christmas on the 12 days of Christmas. And it has um, one of the lines is about seven maids are milking. You know, remember that song? I'm not going to sing it, but anyway. Seven maids are milking. In my book, there was a picture of these milkmaids with the yoke across their shoulders with buckets, and they were skipping along in flowery dresses, looking for all the world as if they're having a wonderful time. <clears throat> Except, of course, that yoke, for many of those girls, ended up crippling them as for years they were bent over and that burden that they carried wasn't good for them. And I think, well, is, is this what it is to carry Jesus' yoke, that we end up being crippled and our weakness is because of that? What does he mean? Take my yoke upon you. How can that be easy? How can that be restful when we're feeling so weak? The answer is, what yoke is he talking about? A few years back, I was um, leading a pastor's conference in uh, Addis Ababa in Ethiopia, and all the pastors there, I discovered, were farmers um, during the week, and they also led churches. And being a typically stupid Westerner, I made the mistake of asking them if they had tractors on their farms. Um, and of course, they looked at me somewhat bemused. And they said, no, we just have oxen. We plow with oxen. Well, I hadn't really thought about plowing with an ox. I said, well, how do you do that? And as I asked the question, I remembered what Jesus said, take my yoke upon you. And these guys said, well, we have two ox Oxen. I always get those wrong. It's not oxies, is it? It's oxen. Two oxen. <laughs> one on the left, one on the right, with the yoke across their shoulders. And the two together would carry the weight of the yoke and plough the field. And I said, well, do they, do they both carry the weight? And they said, no. The one on the right is the most experienced ox. It's the one that's been doing it for years, and it carries the whole weight. What we do is we put a younger one on the left so that the weight of the yoke just touches its shoulders, but the one on the right carries the full weight and of the plough and ploughs the field. I said, now, say that again? The one on the right carries the full weight. The one on the left can barely feel the weight of the yoke upon them. And I came back to this verse that Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For my yoke is easy and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble of heart. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And suddenly a light bulb went on on my head. Because the ox and the plowing that Jesus is talking about is that he is the ox on the left because it's barely touching his shoulders. Jesus' yoke is easy, why? Because on the right, 
is his father. Because he's only doing what father's given him to do. So the father carries the full weight of the yoke and Jesus just goes along beside him. Doing the work that father's doing. But his burden is easy. And his yoke is light because he is linked in with God as his father. And suddenly it all begins to make sense. Why Jesus says to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Because we are in that yoke. So if we are on the left, because we're carrying Jesus' yoke and it's light on us, who is on our right? It's a trick question. Don't anyone call out. Because the answer is on our right is our Father. Because he carries it. We are in Christ. Paul, when he talked about the Christian life, said, what is it to be a believer? We are in him. We are in him in our weakness. We're in him in all the struggles. We're in him in all the things we're doing. And God our Father is on our right carrying the full load for us. Which is why we can confidently rest back in his arms and take his yoke upon us. Because as Christians facing the struggles of all of life, we have one who carries us, who takes the weight from us, who allows us to be weak and takes us through and says, yeah, you, we have this treasure in jars of clay. We are jars of clay. We're cracked pots. We're weak. And Father says, in that I will come to you. In that I will carry you. Now, one of the things I heard in the notices today, because I was listening, was there's so much that's happening in this church that's helping people find that place of rest in their weakness. It's part of what kingdom culture is about for us as Christians, to allow ourselves that place, to say to ourselves, it's okay to need comfort. It's okay to be weak and not be able to cope with everything. You don't have to be strong. You just have to be willing to rest. To rest back in the arms of a father. To rest in our weakness. To rest in all of our struggles and say, Father, however many times I'm going to pray this, I'm just going to trust you. Whether we get the answers that we expect or not, whether things change or whether we don't, we're just trusting God to be our Father in our weakness. See, we are comforted by Paul, Paul says, by the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort. He comes to us and comforts us in our weakness. He carries us in our weakness and allows us just to rest while well, he does his great work in our hearts. And at the beginning of 2 Corinthians, he said, so that we can comfort others with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. See, he doesn't do this, this isn't just to be self-indulgent. It's in order to enable us to fill us with his comforting love so that we can carry others along with us, so that we can be his arms, as we talked about last week. In a few moments, we're going to be sharing bread and wine together, which are very clear symbols of the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. 
which was broken for us in his weakness. His human body was broken so we could receive from him. So when, when we take communion, it's a receiving into him his life. It's affirming again that we're in him, we're in Christ. And in the midst of it all, he comes to us. It's comforting. It's encouraging to us. And we don't have to be strong. We don't have to be make it. We don't have to be super, super Christians. We can just be weak little boys and girls. Jesus said, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. And maybe as we come and take communion this morning, it's because we are weak and burdened and had a tough week that we come. But let him come to us in that as we take his yoke upon us. We get yoked in Christ with the Father. And we will find rest for our souls. Let's just pray together. Father, thank you that we find our true rest in you.